its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. We've arrived at our third and final panel discussion, which will focus on innovations in advancing food security. And I honestly cannot think of a more ubiquitous challenge on which to end the day. Food security is defined as being able to reliably obtain affordable, nutritious food in adequate quantities. High poverty rates and limited access to healthy foods make the Gulf Coast states some of the most food insecure in the country, creating conditions of persistent obesity and chronic illness. Food insecurity challenges in the region could easily worsen as flooding, drought, or other climate stressors threaten local or commercial agriculture, while infrastructure loss could make it even more difficult to access fresh fruits and vegetables. Other parts of the world will face climate-induced challenges to food security ranging from saltwater intrusion to new crop diseases to soil erosion and more. To add to the challenge, of course, COVID-19 has worsened food insecurity, which already disproportionately impacts women and girls, the very people who are often responsible for procuring food for their families. Overcoming these climate exacerbated barriers while promoting gender equity and equality will require adaptation and mitigation, much like our shoreline resilience and coastal economy discussions today. The strategies being developed, though, by our three women innovators on this final panel tackle the food security challenge in different ways through food waste, community engagement, and more. Their ideas could be translatable in parts of the U.S. Midwest and the four corner states, countries in Africa and Latin America, and many other locations. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Karina Campos, co-founder of Nilus. Helena Williams, Director of Operations and Communications at the Walls Project, and Jeanette Gurung, Executive Director of Women Organizing for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management, or WOCAN. So, to get us started here today, Karina, I'm going to turn to you and ask you to give us a brief introduction to Nilas. Hello, and thanks a lot for inviting me. Uh, in this world, one third of all the food produced is wasted, and at the same time, 2 billion people suffer from, from food insecurity. At Nilus, we decided to do something about it four years ago, and so we are being part of the solution. Uh, what we do is to connect uh, producers of food with low income communities. We do it through uh, employing local women that work as food distributors of food, of regular food, and also of food that uh, was about to being wasted. They offer that food at low prices, and thanks to that, low-income communities access nutritious food and are able to consume higher quantities, for example, of fruits and vegetables. Uh, we have already distributed about 4 million kilograms of uh, food, and we have operations in Argentina, where we began Mexico and Puerto Rico. Uh, so that's what we do. Uh, what we learned so far is that a lot of the food that is being wasted is uh, edible, 
and it is being wasted just because of aesthetic problems, packaging problems, and distribution logistics is one of the main the main issues why it is not reaching the people that uh, that suffer from food insecurity. So our model is tackling uh, that problem and and we want to expand our our business uh, to the rest of Latin America and, 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 and even the US. Thanks, Karina. I look forward to getting into more detail with you. So, Helena, I'm going to turn to you now. Could you tell us a bit about the work of the Walls Project in addressing food security challenges in Baton Rouge, specifically through your Baton Roots initiative, which I love that name, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Um, like she said, I'm Helena Williams with the Walls Project, and we're a nonprofit in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with a charge of working and collaborating with partners to eliminate the drivers of poverty. So when our focus on community work came clear to us, food accessibility was a really important area defined, and we really wanted to change it in our city. So currently, for example, in the neighborhoods that we work in, right now there are only two grocery stores serving the third most populated area of our city. So what food was there was obviously the highly processed convenience store food and fast food. So we are, we're dealing with an onslaught of diabetes, obesity problems, things like that in our area. So with this in mind, we began our Baton Rouge Community Farm with a program coordinator, and agri urban agricultural specialist, Mitchell Provencal. We were able to secure a 25 year long CEA with our local parks department to utilize an underused um, go golf course to put a four acre farm right there in the middle of this North Baton Rouge area and create this food oasis that is welcomed for everyone. And it's right in the heart of that area. So since the beginning of 2018, we've had over 5,000 volunteers come to this farm and our other satellite sites. And we've produced over about 30,000 pounds of food, which is on average 60,000 servings. And we'll dig into that more as well. So finally, last but of certainly not least, we have Jeanette. Um, Jeanette, would you tell us a little bit about Wokan's latest project dubbed the Climate Resilient and Agricultural Innovation Hub for Women Farmers of Hawaii County? Thanks very much, Aubrey, and thanks for this opportunity. Um, I should first say that Wokan is a global women-led membership body of over 1,400 members in 114 countries. We're a not-for-profit that works internationally on gender and climate-related activities. We typically build capacities for women's leadership and gender integration. Um, we are headquartered here in Hawaii. Uh, so this is a new project in our own backyard, so it's particularly satisfying for us. So we've been talking about the Gulf Coast and other places. Hawaii is not on the Gulf Coast, but food security is very much an issue here in the state. We are the most geographically isolated state in the country. About 90% of our food is imported from the mainland of the US. So in particular, COVID has shown us clearly the vulnerability we face due to this economic reliance on tourism and on ships to deliver food supplies. Farmers here have seen a decline in sales, high unemployment with food insecurity, skyrocketing demands from the local food banks. So ensuring long-term food security and climate and economic resilience requires boosting local production and processing and innovation to deal with new climate realities that affect moisture, temperature levels, pests, storm events, et cetera. So the state of Hawaii and this island called Hawaii Island seek to increase local food production, decrease dependency on imports, 
diversify rural economy, create jobs, and moving us along towards greater food reliance. So that this is a place where we can, if we can be resilient towards climate change, also more pandemic viruses that disrupt our supply chains, transport systems, and require new skills and inputs from farmers. Yet, despite these great growing conditions we have here, farmers in Hawaii are disadvantaged by very high input costs, which can be 40% higher than other US farms. So the lack of scale economies has made Hawaiian farmers less competitive than other mainland farmers and just a difficult place to be a farmer. Recent studies, however, point to collective action as a solution, providing ways for farmers to share resources, including labor, reduce expenses, aggregate their efforts for producing and marketing goods and services to advance local food security and their own wellness and financial security, which is key to resilience. Cooperative models can help producers overcome barriers of access to capital, labor, to markets, all of which are really important for an island that sits in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So our new initiative will establish a facility on a large parcel of agricultural land on this island, the big island of Hawaii, to provide women farmers and entrepreneurs access to land, planting materials, housing, affordable housing, renewable energy, training and technology for climate smart agriculture practices, agribusiness infrastructure, and other services, including for processing, marketing, and childcare. Thanks. All right, it's time to dive in deeper with all three of our fantastic panelists here. So I'm going to start with you, Karina. Nilas, as you mentioned, is addressing food security challenges by directly connecting low income families with food producers. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why this system that you've developed has been effective, especially in the locations you're already operational, you know, trying to think about how it might be applicable elsewhere. What's made it useful and applicable in Argentina, Mexico, and Puerto Rico? It has been effective because unfortunately in the slums and informal settlements where we work, we discovered that nutritious food is more expensive than outside those, uh, those neighborhoods, especially uh, fruits and vegetables, for example, are between 20 and 30% more expensive. And we have discovered as well that it is a barrier to consume more nutritious food. So we discovered that if we lower prices, people start buying more nutritious food, more fruits and vegetables. And uh, that's why it has been effective uh, in the first place. Uh, in the second place, it has been effective because there is food waste. There is food being wasted due to aesthetic problems. I was yesterday, for example, with an orange farmer here in, in Buenos Aires, and I was looking at the process that he is using, and very, very small oranges or very big oranges cannot be exported and cannot even be um, used in, in the local market in our country. And so that's why we are being effective uh, also, because uh, we, we managed to access food that was being wasted and we can offer at lower prices. It was especially the case uh, with farmers in Argentina and in Mexico, something maybe interesting to highlight, especially having uh, my colleague from Hawaii, uh, was the fact that in Puerto Rico, the model is working a little bit different because uh, as in Hawaii, 
uh, food uh, uh, being consumed in Puerto Rico, over 85% is being imported. So we couldn't find as many farmers in Puerto Rico as in Argentina or Mexico. However, we discovered that farmers in Puerto Rico uh, are not wasting uh, uh, the quantities of food that in Argentina or Mexico are, are being wasted because you have uh, just a few farmers and the, the products are uh, do have a market. So they are even offering pr uh, fruits and vegetables with aesthetic problems because people in Puerto Rico value a lot uh, the possibility of buying food from their island. However, we discovered that some uh, companies that were offering fruits and vegetables from the island, from the island was targeting um, uh, a high income or middle income families and were not reaching the same neighborhoods as, as we were doing. So in that case, we were effective because we were the only ones looking at the bottom of the pyramid. That's really interesting. And speaking of fruits and vegetables, I'm going to turn back to Helena now. Um, the Baton Roots Initiative, one thing that I I've, that struck me when we spoke last um, is how much larger this is than just a community garden. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain how Baton Roots attempts to decentralize food access for the Baton Rouge community and how your efforts are helping your most food insecure community members with some examples. Yeah, so and and I our other guests brought up a really good point of it's not just about having access to food locationally, it's also about pricing. And so one of the things about that we do is we teach in through Baton Roots, we focus on building those pathways for community members to become trained in urban agricultural themselves so that they are able to harvest and produce whenever they need. So at our main farm site, um, we have four acres that we bring volunteers in as well as our staff to continually grow and produce food. Louisiana is lucky in our region that we have pretty much a continuous growing cycle. So we always have the opportunity to be teaching our community members how to be growing food on their own. We also team up with local organizations to help with citywide distribution. So if you can't get to the farm sites, the food can get to you. And in addition to our main farm site, we have a total of 11 satellite sites for being at schools. So we offer, there's a, there's so many different ways to get engaged and learn how to grow food on your own. We also are able to, if you are looking to have a garden bed installed at your home, we can do that for you and teach you about how growing to grow food in your own backyard. Um, so we really want to demystify what growing food yourself is like. And um, that's one of our biggest focuses at the Baton Roots is it's not just about growing food and getting it distributed. It's about putting it right into the hands of every, everyone in an empowerment sense. Fantastic. I'm gonna turn back to you now, Jeanette, and ask you, how will your agricultural innovation hub blend traditional and innovative agricultural practices to improve both climate resilience and food security? And I may maybe even backtracking a little, why it's even important to combine traditional and innovative techniques in the first place? Great question, Aubrey. So here in Hawaii, we have this immense fortune to live amongst traditional values of aloha, which means caring for families and communities and caring for the land, malama aina. 
And these values are embedded in Hawaiian culture and worldviews, but they're also respected and woven into land and agriculture management decisions. So it forms the background of everything that happens here. We can build on these to improve the health and well-being of women farmers and their families through the introduction of practices for soil restoration, water retention, regenerative agriculture that revives the land's productivities. Also in, inherent in these values is a way of seeing the interconnectedness of land and water resources holistically like a watershed management type of approach. So we can use also nitrogen fixing, agroforestry trees, cover grasses, um, that we can use regenerative farming practices that sequester tons of, of atmospheric carbon, for example. So we're going to be testing and piloting soil carbon farming that can bring additional revenues to the farmers. Um, through our training courses, we'll be able to teach farmers how to learn and use apps that can track soil health and measure carbon, monitor moisture levels, determine cost of productions and more. Um, so it, it really is looking at ways that farmers are already managing based on these traditional practices, but bringing in some very modern kind of technologies that can build on that. Another innovation that we're gonna be using is the shared services model um, that we will use to employ, to use local, increase local food production, expand distribution channels for agriculture producers, create jobs, reduce energy costs. These are small farmers. So the only way to really make it here and have a decent livelihood is to aggregate those kind of concerns to lower the cost. Um, and so the business arm of this hub is going to be developing revenue streams for women farmers through diversified products and services like soil composting, vermiculture, bamboo and hemp production, agrotourism, and provide tools and facilities to be shared for processing and marketing products. So the, another focus of this is gonna be on labor saving devices and practices. It needs to be a special focus for women farmers who have additional time constraints because they're also caring for their, their family needs. So this hub, I don't know if we call it innovation, here in the US, we've not seen enough of this, but we feel it's critical to involve, to, to provide daycare facilities, for example, to meet the needs for women farmers, but also have ways to meet their own wellness needs. And the last innovation we're gonna to add to this is the Wokan's own W plus standard, which is a standard used to certify projects at the community level that um, are bringing about women's empowerment benefits. So this W plus can actually be used as a label onto, for example, a soil carbon offset generated from the process of using the soil restoration process can be sold into carbon markets with added revenues being brought back to women farmers. There's a huge common thread here uh, about community engagement, I, I think, and that's the case across all three of our panelists here. So, Helena, I want to jump back to you now and ask, you know, based on what we've been hearing broadly, but also even on your last answer that you gave, why is it so important to build a robust community of people skilled in sustainable agriculture who are deeply invested in their community, specifically in your case in the Baton Rouge and the Gulf Coast region. And why is this important to consider for other locations looking to do something similar? Yeah, at our farm sites, we really have invested in partnering with our local universities, uh, agricultural landscape architecture and sustainability departments to ensure that our farm has continued growth in the in an environmentally sustainable way. 
And so in 2016, prior to the farm being started, our location experienced a massive flood. And knowing this, we had complete attention for creating ways for water to be diverted and captured so that it, it's critical to the farm's longevity. So having such knowledge from the part, our partners, we've been able to build out a plan to create ways to mitigate not just the flooding at the farm sites, but also help our surrounding neighborhoods to the farm um, as a byproduct. So changes like this really with intentionality towards eco-friendly mitigation really helps, not only helps in the long run, but it also becomes an educational opportunity to visitors, community members to see how they can utilize these kinds of concepts, such as planting native wetland varieties in those pockets of the yard that always flood so that they're naturally absorbing the water rather than just trying to divert it to sewers that are very much easily overwhelmed. And there's a community aspect that we haven't touched on yet for, for you, Karina, that I want to bring up now, which is uh, the fact that in the process of addressing local food insecurity, Nilas's structure also facilitates the economic empowerment of women in the communities in which you're operating. And so I was hoping you could explain how Nilas engages women in the food distribution effort. Sure. Uh, they are the ones selling our products. Uh, we select uh, people from the slum, they are women, and they receive a lot of information and, uh, and they strengthen their skills. They learn how to sell, how, uh, the, the, how to use social media. Uh, we help them with marketing strategies and we basically develop for each of them uh, an online marketplace. So they can offer our products to their neighbors. They also receive uh, classes on healthy food, healthy meals, nutrition, and nutrition and, and, and tips, and they share those tips and information with their neighbors. Uh, so basically, uh, thanks to that, they sell our products and they receive an additional income, which is really important for them because most of them are uh, women uh, that ha do have no that have no jobs. Some of them are um, the ones uh, in charge of children and the whole family. So they 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 find in in Nilus an additional uh, source of income, and at the same time, thanks to them, we solved the last mile delivery problem. That is a very very big issue when you try to reach families in slums because the settlements where we work, of course, you, you do not have the same streets that you have in the urbanized uh, places. So it is really hard to reach every single house. So what we are doing is that uh, we are delivering the boxes with all the products that family bought to those ladies' uh, houses, and they are the ones um, delivering the products to their neighbors. So basically, that's how it works. I love that model. I think that's a, a really, uh exciting way to engage women in the community who also have a particular relationship with their community typically that I think um, 
probably lends itself to your work. Um, so, Jeanette, I'm going to come back over to you to continue in this women's empowerment theme here and um, perhaps an opportunity to expand on some of the, the final points in your last response. Um, as you mentioned, your agricultural innovation hub seeks to empower women economically and help women farmers turn their agricultural work into full time jobs, which I think can be a barrier. And so I'm wondering if you can you know, looking at a model here, talk about why providing shared facilities, land and equipment um, is important for your model and how it particularly helps to empower women. Thanks, Aubrey. So, so most farms here are small uh, and over half of these have women producers involved in these as these farms would have to rely on family labor inputs. Labor is in short supply here and very expensive. Um, and the other high costs that I mentioned to be a farmer here make it pretty difficult to maintain decent livelihoods. So many have to have an outside job, as we said, to supply regular income, but many of the women we talked to really wish they could devote their full time to farming and caring for the land. So the challenges of all farmers here are magnified by women farmers in particular, because as we know, women always have less access to capital, new skills, knowledge, markets, and then they have the added burdens of childcare and, and elderly care, which are particularly important here in the Hawaiian culture. So in a recent survey we did with women farmers, they listed challenges of insufficient time, access to capital, land, tools, markets, new skills, labor shortages, high housing and energy cost. Um, and all of them, when we asked the final question, said, would you, would you like to be involved in a communal or of some kind of a sharing um, basis about to, to solve these problems? They said, absolutely, yes. And they believed they could benefit from sharing knowledge, sharing information and support from a group of like-minded women. And they're really keen to work together. And this is what we find all around the world as well. Women seem to, to like very much often to work in these kind of collaborative ways, whether it's sharing, sharing uh, childcare um, opportunities, for example, taking care of each other's kids while somebody else is weed weeding or something. Um, so it seems particularly the, the collaborative model that we're trying to promote here seem particularly fit to women uh, farmers in our communities. That's that's really helpful. Thank you for the additional context. Uh, I also have a question here from the audience. This is from Lisa. I will invite anyone here to take a stab at a response. The question is, many nonprofits supporting food distribution are struggling to continue their support of extraordinary community food needs. What do you see as the next type of business models, perhaps, that can move from subsidy to a financially sustainable, you know, business model solution to address food in, uh, to address food insecurity. Um, so big question. Uh, would anyone like to take a first stab? I, I would like to take on that, uh, Aubrey, uh, because we struggled with that at Nilus. We started being a nonprofit and we started just counting on donations. And then we realized that we needed a sustainable uh, model to scale. And that's why today we are a company, we are a social enterprise, triple impact company, and the families receiving our products are paying for them. Of course, our aim is to offer products at uh, low prices, but we realized that families, of course, do have some money and they can spend that money on nutritious food and they are doing so with, with us. So I think, 
uh, counting on families paying at least part of, of, of the products should be part of the solution to scale. Does anyone else want to weigh in here? Yeah, I can um, say from our end, that is something that we're addressing ourselves right now and in, in trying to become self-sustainable. So one of the things that we do is we offer a lot of services. So if you are a, um, a like a housing association or anything like that, we can put beds and have contracts where our farm staff actually keep up the garden as well as, you know, participating in farmers markets and other ways to bring in revenue to offset the cost of growing the food and distributing the food. Jeanette, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just say this is a key question. Great question. Um, we're exploring also, and in earlier sessions, we talked about public private partnerships with corporates and all. This is something we're also exploring as well to see what corporates, even on the mainland, what might be able to even make use of our innovation hub and even be able to you know, use our space to field test some of their innovations using women to do it. There's also, you know, a number of new government programs, hopefully, that are going to come under the Biden administration that are going to start to fund some climate initiatives, um, green jobs opportunities. They may not be specifically thinking about women, um, but we are. And um, we're con you know, convinced that this could provide some new opportunities to get women started. We also are going to hope to build on this idea of soil farming uh, soil carbon farming that's getting a lot of attention right now. Is this going to be something that we could innovate uh, technologies for and training for and see that as a, as a continual revenue stream for small farmers? Thank you all for that. Um, this also reminds me of a question that I have for you, Karina, which is the fact that your organization has worked with private sector entities to help them facilitate their own food security campaigns. So based on that experience, what role do you think large corporations can play in helping to address hunger in these local contexts? I'm sure they can be part of the solution. And I'm sure they are starting to realize that uh, uh, such campaigns could even help them build uh, uh, their brand. Um, here in Argentina, for example, we work with Shell, the oil company, and through us, they delivered 1 million nutritious meals to uh, low-income communities through soup kitchens. And they did it uh, with a big marketing campaign so uh, on the one hand, they help tackling tackling the, the 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 hunger problem that we are facing here, and at the same time, they used it as a as as a way of helping them uh, with their marketing strategies, and that's something that as long as it can be part of the solution, I think uh, we welcome it at least. Speaking of uh unique strategies. Um, I want to actually reflect on how a bit of this conversation loops back to our first panel today and turn to you, Helena. You know, much like we discussed earlier, art plays a role in the work that you're doing to, in this case, advance food security. So how is Baton Roots incorporating art into its urban farming practices and why is that important to your organization? Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, Baton Rouge, since its conception, has always wanted, we've always wanted to be a mix of urban agriculture and arts. So, a lot of um, 
to explain the reasoning, a lot of people don't feel that urban farming is for them. And so art allows when we do installations and things like that becomes a beacon to bring people in to the urban agri farm, agri farming, uh, farming world, as well as the food insecurity space. So in, it'll expand its impact and reach and Baton Roots is, um. It's a community garden as well, and so we're able to do those types of installations. With um, we're working with the National Endowment for Arts and LSU School of Landscape Architecture to create this playbook of how we can create installation exhibits right alongside our garden beds to very clearly direct people through the garden so they're able to experience it through uh, completely. And additionally, we're planning an edible food forest where we work with a, a local nonprofit, uh, Baton Rouge Green, which is an arbor nonprofit to plant fruit trees that also become a rotating gallery of photography of local photographers in our area. It's all about knowing that community for sure. That's, I, I love those sorts of strategies because it really shows an attention to detail and you know, working with the community in a way that will be received well and, and therefore effective. Um, speaking of, uh, Jeanette, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, I have so many questions, I feel like, for all of you, so I'm really trying to prioritize here. Um, Jeanette, I'm going to ask you, speaking of communities, one of the goals of this entire event is to find ways to translate what our wonderful innovators are doing and learn for other locations. So how do you envision your agricultural innovation hub providing insight and best practices to other rural locations, whether domestically or internationally? Well, for, for Wolcon, that would be a dream come true because we are, as I said, a global organization. We have really strong connections, particularly across Asia, Pacific and African regions. Um, and we have experts working and members in all those countries. So for us, you know, in the dream, this, this agriculture hub, it will have a training center that can host guest farmer teachers from around the world, from other parts of the US, um, perhaps some people on this uh, uh, webinar. Who could so we can facilitate this kind of cross learning exchange and innovation sharing between Hawaii and other countries specifically uh, and from the Pacific region would be particularly appropriate just because of the cultural uh, similar similarities. Um, but this would be something we would love to do. We are as Wokan, we are experts in training others how to train, for example. Um, so it would be something that we could use to disseminate across the country and across the world. And a related follow-up question for you. Um, I'm wondering if you could identify any barriers that exist in Hawaii, elsewhere in the US or <laughs> elsewhere in the world that could prevent or be a challenge for uh, cooperative agricultural hubs being these potential drivers of economic and food security. And then of course, if you've identified the challenges, are there ways to address them? Oh boy, Audrey, you, you opened up the Pandora's box. Um, Challenges is all about what it's about working in gender related to anything. But, um, you know, we find I, I'm going to refer actually to the funding aspect that was brought up by other panelists. Um, this is really it's not just for cooperatives, but anything that any kind of women's initiative, um, particularly related to climate change and agriculture are massively under recognized and underfunded. And you could think about why that is, but I believe that there's persistent and deeply held biases globally everywhere in the world that see the farmer as male 
Um, and that's here in Hawaii and that's everywhere else. And they always think that women are the, the supportive, play the supportive roles and not the primary producers, which means in part that that's why their efforts are not recognized and not funded. So it's still about siloing, even though we talked about SDGs, even though SDGs recognize the SDG five, which is women's inclusion and gender equality, it underlies the success of all other SDGs, but policymakers and funders still silo women into social services and neglect their roles in technical areas and areas of innovation. So it's not just the cooperative model, I'd say it's anything related to agriculture and these kind of more male dominated sectors. It's just a struggle to get the recognition and the funding for the kind of programs and policies that specifically direct resources to women and ideally to women's groups and collectives because we at Wokan are convinced that there are greater opportunities to work through collective action. Um, and we also recognize the tremendous idea of having women's leadership grow and empower women to play more leadership roles in the kind of um, um, collective action um, activities. Thank you for that. Uh, we are very quickly once again winding up our time here. I have one more question to ask you, Helena, and then I'd like to end this session by asking one final question uh, for all of you. Um, Helena, the question for you is, how are climate stressors affecting the way that you operate and teach at your community gardens or the food forests or any of the other you know, endeavors that you've discussed today? Yeah, um, as so as climate change is becoming more and more real for the South, we've never been able to escape not thinking about addressing those climate stressors. So, like mentioned previously, whenever we do agri agricultural practices, we have a clear uh, goal for environmental benefits. So, for example, when we plant, we plant companion plants like marigolds alongside our produce so that they receive those natural benefits rather than looking to chemicals or um, solutions to co control pests or soil traits. Additionally, we also choose to pl uh, plant produce that are considered specialty crops rather than those commercial farms focus of soybean, sugar, or corn. While it may be more efficient to just uh, plant one crop type, this allows for us to be able to rotate those beds, circling back without overworking the soil, and of course, creating it a more sustainable structure to our, 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 our gardening. Thank you for that. Um, and we do have actually one more uh, last audience question that just came through, which again, hasn't been directed to anyone in particular. So anyone who would like to take um, a quick stab would be welcome. Um, this question comes from Ricardo, who notes that some federal programs put the onus on, for example, seafood exporting countries to comply with um, sets of measures to protect fisheries. And he's wondering what would it take to include the women's issues discussed today um, being added to the import requirements, thus expanding the benefits exponentially. So maybe even looking beyond your explicit sector, just when thinking food security more broadly, would anyone like to take um, a stab at that? Jeanette? Ricardo, spot on uh, question for us. Um, so I mentioned earlier, we have this W plus standard. So we, this is the first standard across the world, first certification that specifically is used for either a supply chain or for a, pro a climate related project or a development project that brings specific benefits to women. So, I mean, the dream would be here would be to have the W plus standard or certification be a requirement 
um, just as, as other certification standards are applied and therefore give the consumer the understanding that, you know, by purchasing this product with this icon or this label, you're able to be uh, contributing in a way to something that's simultaneously improving women's situation. Great question, Ricardo, and thank you for asking. Um, we'll move now to our final question. I'm going to do the same thing I did to your co-panelists today and give you a big question to answer in about 30 seconds for your final thoughts. So good luck. <laughs> um, and that question for all of you is this, and we started leading to this with one of Jeanette's questions earlier. How could your innovative projects be used as a model for addressing the diverse food security challenges of communities in other parts of the world outside of where you're already working? And so, um, we're going to go in the same order that we started with today and Karina, I will start with you. Based on our experience, I would hi highlight that it is very important to realize that uh, people from the, in our case, uh, from the slums, from the uh, uh, informal settlements should be part of the solution, can be part and should be part of the solution when addressing food insecurity problems and especially women can be and should be part of the solution. Wonderful and succinct, much appreciated. We'll move on to Helena. Yeah, um, the biggest thing I would like to highlight is just how important collaboration and partnerships are. And so when working in silos, such as like in a food bank or something like that, and that's all you're focusing on, you're missing out on the bigger picture. And so what we've learned most is that the way to be innovative is by taking what everyone is doing and kind of compiling it together. And once again, last but not least, Jeanette. I think it was really best said by a previous uh, panelist, Jessica, who said, invest in people and not just technologies, right? And, and I think for us, it's invest in women. Um, and I just like this final thought, think of the impacts that could be achieved for global food security and climate adaptation by directing resources and innovations to women farmers to meet their needs. Again, put women farmers at the center and figure out what they need. What do they need for tools, credit training, market systems, and social service? Don't forget the childcare. That is the key component for to enable many women to become the kind of successful farmers and everything else they want to become. Um, I would love to say Hawaii would be proud to show how we can do this in a way that demonstrates aloha and malaina aina in caring for the earth and a love for the land. So hope that we can make that a reality. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.